Six years ago, my family and I, which at the time was my beautiful wife, Cheyenne, and just our only, or at the time, our only daughter, Sienna, packed all that we had into this little U-Haul trailer from our apartment in Bellingham with our 2001 Red Super Forester from Bellingham, and we drove from Bellingham all the way down here uh, to, to California. This was six years ago, and at the time, we had, or I had in particular, this great idea, this great plan of moving down here to one day start a church. This was our objective. This is what we wanted to do. This was the plan that we had, the idea that we had as a family in particular. We had friends and family and mentors in my life affirming and praying for us, supporting us uh, in this endeavor. And to make a kind of a long story short, August 2016 was when we moved down here. By October of 2018, after we had started that church, we ended up having to close that church down. What had started as a great plan, a great idea, at least in my mind, in our family's mind, ended up being something that didn't work out the way I had hoped or the way that I wanted to. And as part of that sort of transition of closing that church down, I remember the very first Sunday I walked into these doors, into this building here, at that same kind of moment of transition. Actually, it was the doors right over there where most of you check in your kids on Sunday morning. I remember walking into this place. We had listened to a couple of the sermons, checked out the website a little bit, and coming in for the very first time, I was not happy at all. In fact, I was pretty bitter. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> Amen. <laughs> because the plan and the idea that I had, what I wanted to see happen in our church plant, was happening already right here. And I was thinking, that was my idea. That was what I wanted to do. That was what I wanted to be a part of and see happen. How come it didn't work for me? And one of the things that I realized in that sort of season was that my plan needed God's perspective. That my plan needed God's perspective. And as we dive into our text this morning, this is what we're going to be talking about. So you made me just think about this for your life for a moment. Have you ever had a moment like this where you had a plan or an idea and God maybe changed course correction on you? You thought you were going to go one direction, but then God had something different. And it was hard, that adjustment, that realization that God had something different. You had to wrestle with and process. But again, what I, I want to show you this morning is that our plans need God's perspective. So if you have your Bible, and I hope you do, I want to invite you to turn with me to 2 Samuel 7 this morning. 2 Samuel 7. And as we dive into our text... What we're going to see is that David in the beginning is initially going to start with his great plan or idea. And over the course of the chapter, God's going to speak into that and come up with his perspective, God's perspective. And David's plan is going to have to shift and change. How do we process those moments for us? So what I want to do is look at this text in kind of three movements or three parts. Part one, or point one. The plans that we make. I'm just talking about the plans that we have, the plans that we make. Part two, the perspective that we need. The perspective that we need. And then finally, we'll talk about the gift we receive as we embrace God's perspective on our plans and on our life. So that said, let's dive into the text starting in verse one of chapter seven. 
The text reads this. Now when the king lived in his house, and the Lord had given him rest from all his surrounding enemies, the king said to Nathan the prophet, See now, I dwell in a house of cedar, but the ark of God dwells in a tent. And Nathan said to the king, Go do all that is in your heart, for Yahweh the Lord is with you. Notice as that passage begins, three times David was referred to as the king. The Lord had given the king rest. The king said to Nathan the prophet, and Nathan said to the king. It's the king at the very beginning who has these ideas and this plan. It's the king who is coming up with this really good idea of wanting to do something really good, of building a house or a temple for God. But as the story progresses, as God begins, as we'll see in a moment, speak into David's life, David's not going to be referred to as the king anymore, though he is still the king. The text will then transition to referring to David as the servant or my servant. And as the king, who, yes, is at this point in the story, the text says in verse 1, the Lord has given him rest from all his enemies. The picture we're meant to envision is that, yes, the battles have been won. Victory has been given. David has established his kingdom with a new capital city in Jerusalem. All is well. David has rest. A couple chapters ago in 2 Samuel 5, we were told that some of the surrounding region provided David with all of these magnificent cedar trees. The cedars of Lebanon. That's where the good cedar is. And with those cedars, David built this massive house and palace for himself. And we're not given any indication this was a wrong thing for David to do or that David was being selfish or overly ambitious. So far, so good. David has done the Lord's will. But one day, perhaps, David walks out of his massive mansion, if you will, and he notices a bit of incongruity. Here am I, the king dwelling in this massive house. And there's the ark of God over there. Remember, the ark of God is symbolizing the power and the presence of God. There's the ark of God over there. And it's just dwelling in a tent. That doesn't seem right. And by the way, the tent was, yes, in its own right, a a magnificent and glorious structure. This wasn't like, you know, your average camping tent. But still, the point stands How is the the God of the universe just dwelling in a tent? So David comes to his friend, his mentor, his confidant, Nathan, and says, this is what I want to do. David declares his plan to Nathan, seeking wise counsel, doing all the things you're supposed to do when you have a plan or an idea, right? Get some wisdom, get some help. And what does Nathan say? Go do all that's in your heart. The mentor, the friend affirms David's plan. And this isn't Nathan being like the yes man for David. This isn't Nathan being like, oh, I'm just going to say yes to whatever the king does. I'm going to bow down to him. And whatever the king says goes. Because we know this about Nathan. In a couple chapters, Nathan is going to be the one to confront David after David commits that sin with Bathsheba. 
So again, the picture we're meant to have, David is declaring his plans, bringing help in with those plans, seeking wise counsel, getting affirmation in that moment. I see this problem, this incongruity. I want to do something about it. I want to do this plan and idea to honor God. But what David is going to notice and what David is going to learn is something that likely his own son wrote in Proverbs 16. The heart of the man plans his ways, but the Lord establishes his steps. And this is what we'll see as we go on with part two here, the perspective that we need. If David has declared this plan, what about God's perspective on that plan? Verse four. But that same night, the word of the Lord came to Nathan Go and tell my servant, there it is, that servant language, that ser- my servant David, thus says the Lord. See, friends, as we think about the perspective that we need, one thing we for sure can say from the very front, the perspective that we need is found in what God says, what the word of God, what the word of the Lord says. The word of the Lord comes that very same night to Nathan, saying, go tell my servant David, thus says says the Lord. When we have plans and ideas, even plans and ideas that, as best as we can tell, are coming from a place of wanting to honor God, steward the gifts that God has given us, from a place of wanting to live faithfully before him, we still need to consider what does the word of God, what does the word of the Lord have to say? Thus says the Lord. And this phrase here in verse 4, the word of the Lord came, is found only in two other places in the book of Samuel. The first time, back in chapter 15, when the word of the Lord came to Samuel saying, I regret that I have made Saul king. The next time, or the, the other time, 2 Samuel 24, when the word of the Lord came to David, rebuking, correcting David for the census that David will end up taking that was outside of the parameters of what God had envisioned. And so in this moment right here, when we read this line, the word of the Lord came, we're meant to see this as a very vital moment with a crucial message. A vital moment with a crucial message. And so what I want to ask you as we consider this, is as we have these plans and ideas for our lives, and maybe it's not necessarily we're gonna pick up and move our family, but maybe even just your plan for the day ahead. This is the way that I think my day should go. Do we consider what God might have to say about that? The word of the Lord came, thus says the Lord. And what does God say? Pick up in verse six. I have not lived... In a house since the day I brought up the people of Israel from Egypt to this day. But I have been moving about in a tent for my dwelling. In all the places where I have moved with all the people of Israel. Did I not speak a word with any of the rulers of Israel whom I commanded to shepherd my people Israel saying, Why have you not built me a house? The Lord's asking David through Nathan these sort of rhetorical questions. I've never asked anyone to ever build me this house. This is not something I've asked of my people. The Lord has asked a lot of things from his people. 
throughout the story of Israel. But this is not one of them. And what's interesting is what we see as David is gaining God's perspective here. Through these sort of rhetorical questions, God is communicating something very particular about who God is. That mainly, number one, God is a God who meets his people where they are at. David is being told and having to recollect, remember your ancestors wandering about in the wilderness. They did not have a home. They did not have a permanent structure. Therefore, as a God who meets his people where they are at, I was mobile too. I went with my people. My presence maintained and sustained your people. And secondly, on top of that, if you're David and you're coming to the throne, if you're establishing your kingdom, one of the things you as an ancient king in that time would recognize is that all of your kind of king buddies in the ancient world would have ascended to their respective thrones and one of the first things they would do to seek blessing and favor from like the lowercase g gods is build their god a beautiful temple and structure. Because as a new anointed king, you would want the favor and blessing of your God. So therefore, build your God a temple. Build your God a house. And perhaps, we're not explicitly told, but perhaps this is kind of running in the background of David's mind. That yes, I want the blessing and favor of God upon my kingship. Therefore, this is what I'm going to do. But God, again, giving his perspective on David's plan is inviting David to see God and remember God for who he truly is. That I'm not like those other gods. I am not like those gods where you have to do something to earn blessing and favor in your life. No, I am a God who gives blessing and favor despite who you are or what you've done. And that this is the perspective that David is being invited to see. But look how the text progresses, verse 8. Now, therefore, thus you shall say to my servant, there it is again, David, thus says the Lord of hosts, I took you from the pasture from following the sheep, that you should be prince over my people Israel, and I have been with you. Again, there's that presence language. I'm with you wherever you went, and I've cut off all your enemies from before you. One of the things that God is inviting David to see is God is giving his perspective, is inviting David to remember his own story. Remember, David, where I have brought you from. That oftentimes, most of the time, I would, off, off, I would actually argue all of the time, in order to really have God's perspective, we have to view our stories the way God views our story. Not how the world views our story. Not how other people view our story. But how does God view your story? I took you, David, from being a shepherd and I've brought you thus far. And I, verse 9, will make for you a great name, like a name of the great ones of the earth. And I will appoint a place for my people Israel, and I will plant them, so that they may dwell in their own place and be disturbed no more. A couple things you need to notice about this, kind of these verses right there. God tells David, I will make for you a great name. The perspective that God is giving David in this moment right here is connecting David's own personal story to the much larger story of redemption. Remember, all the way back in Genesis 12, God promised Abraham what? I will bless you and make your name great. That what God is telling David is that, David, your story, the perspective you need, is gonna be, invite, is gonna be brought into my much larger story to bless the nations. 
that your family is being incorporated into the blessing that I promised Abraham all the way back those hundreds of years ago in Genesis chapter 12. I will make for you a great name, and then the the other language there, I will plant you. David, his idea was more or less to give God a permanent house. God's perspective for David, no, I'm going to plant you. I'm going to do that for you. And that language they're planting is very much Garden of Eden language. Plant you like a garden, Genesis 1 and 2 style. This is what God is going to do. Moreover, the Lord declares to you that the Lord will make you a house. And when your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you, who shall come from your body, and I will establish his kingdom. Now pay attention to verse 13. He shall build a house for my name. How are you feeling if you're David right now? I thought that was my idea. I wanted to build you a house. But this seed, this descendant is going to be the one to do my idea? Now we don't, we're not explicitly told like David's emotional response here in this moment. And we do this, right? Like we kind of read our experience into the text for better or for worse. But as I read verse 13, I cannot help but think of the story, the journey that God has brought me on. When I walked into these doors that very first time, this emotional response is what I experienced. God, that was my idea. That was my plan. And someone else, some other ministry is getting to do that? Maybe for you. If you had a a goal, a plan, an idea, and again, all the indication we get that David's motives are pure and good. This isn't like David having like selfish ambition stuff going on. This is like pure and good from the from best as we can tell. Have you ever been in those moments or a season in your life where you were honestly attempting to do something good for God? You had a plan for your life. You had a plan for your family or your business, for school. With the heart to serve God, yet that blessing and that hope didn't maybe come to you in the way you expected, but maybe went to someone else. What was that like? How did you respond internally and even externally in those moments? God is inviting David here in this moment to have a different perspective. His perspective, God's perspective. That the plan that David had, yes, is good on one level, but it's not great. And that David is being challenged in this moment in verse 13. Will you, David, submit to my plan, in my perspective, even even if it's not exactly how you might have originally planned? And I would submit to you, more often than not, that that's exactly the same question God often asks us. Will you submit to my plan, even though it's not exactly what you had planned 
or envisioned. And so the challenge here, when we're encountered with God's perspective, is to adjust, is to submit. David will adjust. David will submit. And in doing so, he's going to receive something far greater and far more magnificent than what he had planned. Look at this with part three. The gift we receive. Verse 14. I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. And when he commits iniquity, I will discipline him with the rod of men, with the stripes of the sons of men. But, but, verse 15, but my steadfast love will not depart from him as I took it from Saul, whom I put away from before you. And your house and your kingdom shall be made forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. Notice what God is saying to David. That it's my steadfast love. That word is hesed. Can you say hesed with me? Hesed. It's this beautiful little word that is, captures so much of God's kindness, God's faithfulness, God's mercy, and his love. That my steadfast hesed love will not depart from you and your family, David. Despite the iniquity, which is kind of like a fancy Bible word for saying all the dumb things your family is going to do. Despite all the dumb things your family is going to do, my steadfast love will not depart from you. Again, this beautiful concept of God's steadfast love. One of, I think, the best explanations of God's steadfast love is found in the Jesus Storybook Bible. How many of you read that to your kids? Where the Jesus Storybook Bible says God's love is the never giving up, never stopping, always and forever love. And this is what David is receiving. God's steadfast love to him and his family, despite all of the horrendous things David himself is going to do, and every single one, essentially, of his own descendants is going to do. And that it's God's has said, God's steadfast, unfailing love that is going to fuel and inflame this promise, we read it already, of a kingdom that will not end. It's the character of God, the God of love that infuses God's kingdom. The steadfast love of God is the foundation of this kingdom that will not end. Multiple times we've already read the promise that God says to David that this kingdom will not end. It is a forever kingdom. And that as David had initially planned, God, I want to build you a house. Notice what we've read up until this point. And this is, I think, key to understanding the chapter. We will not understand 2 Samuel 7 until we understand the two ways that the word house is being used in this chapter. David's plan, I'm going to build you a house. The way that David is thinking about house is a one-off physical structure in one particular place. But in back in verse 11, the Lord says to David, I will make you a house. And the way that the Lord is using the word house is not with a physical structure in one place, but a kingdom that expands and expands and will not end. David, you thought X over here? Small and in one place. God's plan? Much more expansive than what David envisioned. A kingdom that will not end. 
And it's this particular promise right here in 2 Samuel 7 that would make me want to argue that if you as a Christian were to list like the top 10 Old Testament chapters that would be most important for you to understand, I would even say the top five. 2 Samuel 7 should be up in that list. Because it's this chapter in particular and this promise that we just read in particular of a kingdom that will not end, a forever eternal kingdom that Jesus himself sees himself fulfilling. When the gospel of Mark opens up, we're told that Jesus was coming about Galilee preaching the gospel of God, the kingdom of God. And that Jesus himself said in Mark 1.15, the time has come. The time is here. The kingdom of God is at hand, or the kingdom of God is near. Everything that you have been waiting for from 2 Samuel 7, that kingdom will not, that will not end, Jesus says in Mark 1.15, the time is here. The kingdom of God is here. Repent. Turn from your plans and ideas. Repent, turn, and believe and trust my plan. Believe and trust my kingdom plan for your life. And that Jesus continues to preach and to teach about the gospel, the good news, the announcement of God's kingdom, fulfilling 2 Samuel 7. Jesus would go on to say that my kingdom is not of this world. My kingdom doesn't operate like how all the kingdoms of this world operates, with injustice and violence and cruelty. But my kingdom is definitely for this world. It's for you and it's for me. And that by the end of the, of the, end of the book, in the book of Revelation, that the kingdoms of this world will become the kingdom of our Lord and our Christ. That everything goes all the way back to 2 Samuel 7. And that Jesus himself sees himself as the true son of David. The one that will fulfill and bring all of these promises. And so as we think about this, if this is true, if this is what we receive, a kingdom that will not end, because by the way, this is exactly what we, the New Testament explains as recipients of this promise to David. That we are co-heirs with Christ. That the promises given to Jesus are also given to us. And the kingdom that Jesus announced is being freely given, is freely on offer to you and to me. And that we're given this choice. Will we turn from our own plans and ideas about how our lives are supposed to go and turn and trust the plans and purposes of God's kingdom for our lives? Friends, the kingdoms of this world come and go. Rulings come and they go. Leaders come and they go. And it's very tempting and it's very easy to want to live for the kingdoms of this world or live even more personally for the kingdom of self my own plans, my own ideas. But the book of Hebrews tells us, Hebrews 12, 28, let us be grateful 
for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken. That what we receive is something that is sure and steadfast, something that is immovable and impenetrable and that will last forever. Friends, what are you building your life on? Are you building it on God's perspective, what God's word says? Are you building it on God's revealing of who he is? Are you building it on God's kingdom and what he has to bring? A kingdom that's marked by joy and justice and love and peace. A kingdom where the king, yes, is Jesus, who demands radical obedience from us, for sure. And so as we think about this story here, one of the things we've seen is that, yes, David starts with having his own plan, having his own idea, a good and in many ways a right idea. I want to build you, God, a temple. I want to build you, God, a house. But one of the things David needed, secondly, was God's perspective. God's perspective that comes from God's word, revealing who God is and revealing something much far greater and far more magnificent than what David initially thought. And as David adjusts and turns and submits, however that process might have looked, he is an heir and a recipient of something far greater and something far more glorious, something eternal that lasts forever. And as we think about, again, our own lives, one of the questions I have for you is, very simply, in those moments where you have a plan or an idea, whether it's for your own day, for your own week, or for your own life, whether that's for the next conversation you're going to have after this gathering, or for your five-year, ten-year plan, if you're that kind of person, Do you allow God's perspective to shape your plan? Do you allow what God has to say to shape your plan? And when, not if, and when a God adjusts your plan, how do you respond? Do you trust and believe that what he has to offer is far more glorious and better? Do you trust and believe that his way is the sure way to build your life? As the worship team comes up, I want to encourage you, friends, this morning. I want to encourage you, build your life not on your own plans and ideas. And it's not always easy to make those adjustments. It's not always easy to be in those moments where God has something different, it sure wasn't for me. But one thing that I want to encourage you with is that as we turn and say yes to God's plans for our lives, God's perspective for our lives, we begin to experience and know and fall in love with him in ways far more greater than we would have otherwise. Father, we want to live our lives for you.
Father, I know for many of us in this room, that's exactly what we want. We want to live our lives for you. And sometimes it can be so hard when things don't turn out the way that we want them to. So God, I pray by the power of your spirit right now that whatever moment or situation that any of us, all of us are facing right now, that you would breathe words of comfort and assurance. That you would help us in a deep way to know that you hold our lives in the palm of your hands you are for us and not against us and that nothing can separate us from your steadfast love. So Jesus, as you remind us of your goodness, I pray that you would help us to be intentional with where we build our lives, with the choices that we make, that we would hear your voice and respond So Jesus, we ask for your help. Spirit, we ask for your help. Breathe life into us, we pray. We pray these things in the name of Jesus. Amen. Let's go ahead and stand.